want a principle for which to set your life and the lives of your kids and the lives of your family? Do the things that matter in eternity. Do the things that will matter a thousand years from now. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. You know, when preaching the Word of God, I'm trying to accomplish two things every Sunday, and I can't accomplish that in my own strength and in my own power. But the two things that I would like to have happen, ideally each week, is one, to give glory to God, to remind us of the truths of the Scripture, of the doctrines of the faith, of the faith once delivered for the saints, and then also to be helpful to you in whatever way I possibly can. And sometimes being helpful to you means not saying what you want to hear, but saying what you need to hear. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a couple of you that will disagree with me on some of the things that we bring out. I've prayed through these, and whatever you end up, I want you to know I love you as a brother and sister in Christ. And so I hope that you, that you hear my intention here as one who wants God's absolute best for you. But having said that, we're going to talk about some things. Hebrews chapter 12, and beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Throughout the history of God's church, we have always looked to those who have gone before us as an example to what it means to live in the faith and as a precedent for what it means to pass on future faith. And he says, in this sense, we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. These witnesses that he has mentioned in Hebrews 11, they are the part of God's assembly. And sometimes when we think of the cloud of witnesses, the implication is that they are watching us. But a better interpretation is that they are testifying to the faithfulness of God. They have witnessed in their life and in their example God's faithfulness and God's blessing upon them. And so we are to study them. We are to look to their example, and it's not so much that they are looking to us, but rather that we are looking to them. And the writer describes the race of life that we are in as really the believer's race, a race to endure, a race to complete and to get to the finish line. And in running that race, the scripture uses quite a bit of scriptural metaphors, of sports metaphors, such as fighting the good fight of faith, laying hold on, on eternal life. He talks about not fighting as one who beats the air, as wearing the full armor of God, this warfare mentality. And in running this race, you cannot be half-hearted. You cannot be in at your convenience. We need people who are all in, who say, I'm committed to Jesus Christ and willing to do whatever it takes to reach others for him, to be world changers for Christ. D.L. Moody said it this way, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. No one can sum up all God is able to accomplish through one solitary life, wholly yielded, adjusted, and obedient to him. The world has yet to see what God will do with people who are fully consecrated in running the race of faith. And in describing this race of faith, he tells us what it is we need to run from. He says to lay aside every weight. 
And so in order to run that race, there are some things that I have to set aside. Paul is writing to an audience that had just recently become familiar with the Olympics because they were invented in his time period. And so he knew what it meant to train. They would wear weights. And when the day of the race came, they would take those weights off so that they would be able to run well. Even modern day Olympic athletes do this. Michael Phelps will shave every hair off of his skin in order to get a couple of extra tenths of a second so that he can outdo his competitors when he swims laying aside the weights. And so there are some morally neutral things in life that are hindering us in running the race. I saw a photo recently of a, of a marathon runner. He's about halfway through, and I don't know if it's photoshopped or not. It probably is. But about halfway through the marathon, they show him taking out a lighter and lighting out a cigarette right during the middle of the race. Now, I don't know if he's doing that to, to set a statement or to be a rebel, but I can guarantee you that's not gonna help his lung capacity. And, and for you and I, there are some things in our life that may not be wrong in and of themselves, but if, if they become the priority for us, then they have become a weight and they could become a sin that holds us back. There are a lot of weights that we could talk about today, but I think one that is especially prevalent within the life of our church and in this country in general is the weight of sports. Let me say this, the Lord is, is obviously not against sports. There are all kinds of scriptural metaphors towards sports, as we mentioned previously. But I think there's a challenge that parents and grandparents face in this generation that maybe you did not face a generation ago. You know, when you think in the United States of most churches where they had a heyday, at least attendance-wise, you think of the, of the 70s and the 80s, maybe in our case the mid-90s when jobs had increased here for a period of time. But during that time period, you also had something else going on. You had something called a calendar that wasn't filled all the time. And nowadays... Sundays and Wednesday nights and days which used to be reserved for the church, it's no longer the case. And so parents are placed in very difficult positions. I don't think that they have the challenges of the Great Depression, at least financially, but I just want you to know, parents, I don't envy you here. And my goal is not to condemn you or not to shame you, but just to, to help you in seeking the Lord in this. I know where you're coming from, what you want is success for your children. You're going to do whatever it takes to help them be successful. What parent wouldn't do that? Jesus will say the same thing. If your child asks for fish, will you give them a snake? If they ask for bread, will you give them a stone? If there's a parent who's worth anything in this room, surely you want the best for your children. You want them to be successful. And so if that means going to an athletic event, you want to get them there. But what does success really look like in the kingdom of God? Joshua 1.8 defines this for us when the Lord gives a command to Joshua. He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So success, first and foremost in my life, is devoting myself and my family to the things of God. And so there are a lot of things that aren't bad in and of themselves, but when a good thing turns into a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. How do I know when that happens? i got to measure a couple of things. How I spend my time and how I spend my money. What I schedule and what I spend reveals what I prioritize about my life. 
I, I hear several of you say, man, I would love to be in church, but because of the schedule, you know, it just pulls us away. This is when they do the sports. Who's in control of the schedule? And here's the thing about idols. The people who have them most often don't notice them. We'll pay a lot more attention to a $20 piece of wood sitting on somebody's mantle than the billion-dollar stadium that somebody built around the street. We've got idols. We just don't see them sometimes. And God tells us in his word that his glory he will not share with another. God does not compete for your affections. He claims all of them and deserves all of them. And I don't want to make this as a comparison or a scriptural analogy. I just think that there's something in it to see. You know, in Daniel, the abomination of desolation for the Jewish culture was when a pig would be sacrificed on the altar. That was considered unclean during the Jewish time period. And so for a foreign ruler to come in and do that was considered an insult to the people of God. And I just think it's tragically ironic today that many within our country won't sacrifice a pig on the altar, but they will spend a lot of time watching a pig getting tossed and kicked around, filled with stadiums all day long while neglecting worship attendance. Some of us will spend hours on end watching really fast cars go around in circles. You think church is boring? <laughs> we'll watch people, if we're not careful... Spend hours on end, we'll watch our children swing a stick at a wrapped up piece of cork and call that success. I wonder if we really think that's ultimately what God wants for our family. And listen, I don't want to come to you as someone who's innocent in this. I don't have children, but I have Kentucky basketball. And I tell you, I rarely lose my voice when preaching or counseling or sharing the gospel with someone, but I lose it quite frequently during Kentucky games. It is not helpful for my sanctification. I want you to know that. And so how do we lay aside the weight of sports? Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, okay, we can worship God anywhere, anytime. Well, that's true. But keep in mind that the example you are setting right now for your kids is the example that they are going to follow later on. And how far does your logical argument extend? And so if, if you're okay with missing Sundays for sports, what about when they become teenagers? Is it okay for them to go on a date. They say, Mom, Dad, I want to go on a date this morning. You say, it's Sunday, we're going to church. Yeah, but you said we could worship God anytime, anywhere. What's well, true? But God also commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together in his house. That there is something that happens when God's people get together for worship that doesn't just happen in small groups. It can't be replaced. It can't be simulated with something I do by myself or even with my friends. And I'm not saying this will be the case with you, but most of the time when I have a conversation that says I can worship God anytime, anywhere, it's a family that ends up not being in church. You may be the exception to that rule. I don't know. I'm just telling you, in 10 years of pastoral experience, almost everyone who says that ends up not being there. You see, sports are not eternal. But worship is. And you want a principle for which to set your life and the lives of your kids and the lives of your family? Do the things that matter in eternity. Do the things that will matter a thousand years from now. 
And I'm going to give you my personal encouragement here. I'm not saying this is, this is from the Lord. I would encourage you in this. Keep the school sports that don't interfere with Sunday worship and drop the travel ball. Here's why. Either we prioritize worship or we don't. And listen, if your kid is as good as you think they are, the coach says they are, and you prioritize worship, don't you think God will bless you for that? I think too often we try to teach our kids about success, but we don't teach them what failure is like. And most often in life, they'll experience a lot more setbacks than they will successes. We teach them that the universe revolves around them, and then they get out in the world and have an entitlement mentality when the truth is the universe revolves around Jesus. He's the one we praise. He's the one we worship. And the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's better than Pharaoh. Moses considered it greater. Treasure of Christ and treasure of Egypt. He's better than the homeland. Abraham believed God. It was counted for him for righteousness. He looked for a city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Jesus is better than anything or anyone you could imagine. See, what we have to do is we have to keep in mind what are primary things and what are secondary things. Primary things are the things of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord. He is the one who will give you the desires of your heart. So when I put the things of God first, the things of earth come in because God desires to give good gifts to his children. But when I put the things of earth first, not only do I lose out on the things of God, but I also lose out on the things of earth. C.S. Lewis says it better than me. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. I think of Daniel and his friends. When given an opportunity in a foreign land to eat the king's meat, they said, we will not do so. Give us water and vegetables and see how we are in a few days. And they turned out in better shape than the guys who ate what the king offered. I would just tell you this. When you prioritize Christian witness, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord you set an example for your children that will not be forgotten. I want to recommend a book to you that I think is good on sports. It's from Pastor David Prince. It's called In the Arena, The Promise of Sports for Christian Discipleship. In the Arena is the title of it. Pastor David Prince, I can give that to you after work. How are you handling the weight of sports? Let me ask you something else. I'm, I'm getting in deep this morning. How are you handling the weight of of work. And please hear the spirit of what I'm saying in, in, in the way in which it is intended. I know some of you bust yourselves and you, would, and you do admirably to provide for your family. But can I just say this? It's been my experience that it is really difficult to consistently grow in Christ apart from regular worship attendance. And it may not be possible for you, but if you can change your schedule... I think you should consider doing so even if it means less money for you. And listen, if you're working a swing shift and you get off at, at 7 in the morning, don't go to bed. Grab some coffee and sleep right here in church. You say, I don't want to fall out. Hey, I can name several people who do it every Sunday. You join right in. Trust me, you won't be the only one here. And I don't want you to think that, that I haven't struggled with this issue myself. You get tired of me talking about the speech and debate team. What I haven't talked about 
is that many of those tournaments occurred on weekends. They occurred on Sundays. I tried to go to the ones that lasted Thursday through Saturday. Sometimes it was impossible, and I tried to compensate for that as best I could. I held an Easter service somewhere in Wisconsin in a hotel parking lot, which a lot of friends uh, attended, but it was incredibly difficult. I had an opportunity at the end of college to stay on for graduate school there. Probably could have gotten a doctorate and gotten a teaching position in the communication department at Western but I just knew that that would mean missing a lot of worship services. And I didn't want to do that anymore. You see, weights are things that hold us back, and not worshiping together regularly with God's people holds us back. And let me just say this. If picking up a few extra shifts for some Christmas money results in you missing out the whole reason that we celebrate Christmas in the first place, is it really worth it? Your kids won't remember how much money you made, but they will remember what you prioritized. So he says to lay aside the weight of sports. There's the weight of work. And now that I've made some of you feel guilty, there's also the weight of guilt and regret. So you can lay that to the Lord too. Bearing burdens that only the Lord can bear. I I talked with a, a couple of people just within the last month or so. One lady in Indiana who's going through a, a, a divorce She's new to our faith tradition. She said, you know, as I'm going through this, I just wonder, is it okay if I still come to church? Am I allowed to still come? I tell you what, I don't want to be a part of a church where she's not. I talked with someone the other day wanting to serve in the church, and they were talking about the different things that were in their past, and they said, is there there anywhere that I can serve at all? (laughs) I said, man, have have you read who God used? He doesn't use the people who have it all together. And incidentally, if you've got it all together, you're putting on the facade that you do, you don't need worship. This is for people who are messed up. I hope you're one of them. The weight of guilt and regret holds us back. He says, you've got to lay that down at the foot of the cross. You can't bear burdens that only God was meant to bear for you. Well, now that he talks about the weight, he also mentions the sin which clings so closely. There's a lot of things we could mention. We could mention pride, which... Ends, ends in self-sufficiency. We could mention ingratitude, which often results in pride. They go hand in hand. But I, I think one that is especially relevant for the church is the issue of sexuality. Our world is just obsessed with sexuality. You can't watch a TV show or a movie or get on the internet without being bombarded with sexual images. Images from which if our forefathers had seen them hundreds of years ago would have been considered quite lurid. And you know, we talk about what God's plan is for for marriage. We talk about defending the sanctity of marriage. We have to go with whatever the rules are for, for transgender regulations in the, in, in the military. We have to debate that. And my concern is that the church will spend so much time talking about those outside issues that we don't spend enough time talking about what's here in the church because the Word of God says that any sex, heterosexual or homosexual, outside of marriage is destroying your soul. And we'll spend a lot of time defending what marriage is when we don't practice it ourselves or when we don't wait for the blessing of God on it. I told you, I'm getting in really deep. I wonder how many people in this room right now are having affairs. How many of you are addicted to pornography? Because if the statistics are right, it is a bunch of us. We parade around as if everything is okay. 
See, the secular argument of the age is to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. And what we don't realize is that open, unrepentant sin isn't simply to do what you think is best, but it is to imperil your eternal state. It is to damn your soul. And so the scripture says, flee youthful lust. Don't put yourself in a position of compromise. I was talking with someone last week who had some, some serious drug-related issues, and I, I was saying to them, you know, we need to get you into, in, into counseling and rehabilitation. We need to, to help you in, in whatever way that we can. And, and this person kept arguing, I can control it. I can turn it on. I can turn it off. What an arrogant thing for us to say that we can somehow control sin. That's why the scripture says, let us run the race. You are not running this race by yourself. You are running this with brothers and sisters in Christ. And you need other people in your life who can protect you from yourself. Can't do it by ourselves. Can't do it alone. To lay aside the weight. To lay aside the sin which clings so closely. He tells us what to run from. Then he tells us what to run for, forgetting those things which are behind, to run for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, to press toward the mark, to strain toward the goal, to press onward and forward, both body and soul, for the heavenly prize, for the look in his eyes, for the crown that will not fade away, forget things behind, reach farther ahead, or follow the Savior's example instead, count all gain as but loss, and all loss as but gain, to know him, our glory and our all. He says you got to run with endurance. And here's the mark of a true believer, and simply this, can you hack it? Everybody can start out with a bang, but the people who are finished, those who endure to the end, are the ones that receive the prize. I see a lot of people discouraged about different things. They say, well, this person failed me in life, therefore I'm going to give up on the Lord. Listen, friend, if you look into anyone other than Jesus, they are going to fail you. You just be assured of that. And so he says, are you able to endure? And then part of what we have to do is not simply look to run the race, but we got to run our race. you got to run your race, not someone else's race. Can I tell you something that will help you with anything in your life if you'll really take this seriously? Don't compare yourself with others. Only compare yourself with Jesus. He's the one we look to. Because one of two things are going to happen. One, you're going to compare yourself with others and you're not going to measure up, so you're going to fall into despair. Or two, you're going to look around at everybody around you and say, I'm doing better than them. Can I get a witness type A personalities? I'm doing better. I must be okay. If you will stop looking at other people and look to Christ... It'll change the way that you look at things. Because rather than feeling unappreciated, well, nobody appreciates me, I take it to Jesus and say, you know what, there's not many people that appreciated him on the cross either. I can endure this. Or somebody insults me for the name of Christ, Jesus took a lot more than I ever took. Or Jesus took an insult so that somebody might come to Christ. Maybe I can endure a couple of things at work so that other people might hear the gospel. And when you stop comparing yourself to others and you start comparing yourself to the Lord, looking unto Him, it makes a difference for you as much as possible. Don't take insults and slights personally, but lay them at the foot of the cross. So run that you may obtain, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says what to run from, what to run for, then he says who to look to. Looking unto Jesus, 
the author and the finisher of our faith, the founder and the perfecter, the one who wrote the book in the beginning and the one who perfects and finishes, the one who completes the mission and what the world despised as shame, Jesus despised as insignificant. They said the cross is shameful. Jesus said the cross is nothing compared to the joy of the Lord and he endured it, despising the shame and now he's set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the reason this book is written is to encourage us to endure the race that is set before us. And the greatest danger for us is that we would not finish well. Maybe you know some high-profile pastors and preachers, ministers, who are no longer in the ministry. It happens so often nowadays, it's not even a surprise. Maybe that's true for people you know personally. But it's not how you start, is it? It's how you finish. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And you have to keep going. Some of you that think it's your time to get out of the game, God will call you out of the game, and until he does, you've got to move. We need you. Everything in my life needs to be measured with three questions, and they're taken straight from the text. Have I laid aside the weights and sin which clings so closely? Am I running the race with endurance? And then am I looking to Jesus? You know, sometimes that's going to mean making some difficult choices. I may have to drop some hobbies. I may have to switch careers. I may have to change some lifelong patterns, but it will be worth it in Jesus. You may have heard of Eric Little. You may have not. Eric Little was the fastest man in the world in the 1920s, competed in the 1924 Olympics. There was just recently a book biography written about him by Duncan Hamilton. Ironically enough, it's called Clouds of Glory. We talk about clouds of witnesses today. Eric Little was known for being fast, but he was also known for being unorthodox. He was unorthodox in form. The way they told him to run is not the way that, that you're supposed to run. He would hold his head up as high as he could. His arms would go flailing about. They said he, he, he just looked ridiculous, but he was faster than everyone else. Not only was he unorthodox in form, he was also unorthodox in life. His life's mission was that God had made him for China. And in the Oscar-winning movie, Chariots of Fire, the one that plays the slow-motion music, and you, you see them running there on the beach and in other places, they have a scene where he says, God made me fast, and I, I sense his pleasure. You know, he never actually said those words. They were added by the screenwriter. And it's true for his life, but he was really focused on China. And on a Sunday... In Paris, France, at the 1924 Olympics, the man who was the fastest in the world at the 100 meters sat it out and preached in a church service because he wanted to honor the Lord's day. So they put him in the 400 meters, which he hadn't run and was really more of a long-distance sprint, wasn't really for his running type, and nobody said that he would win. And he ran that race later in the week, and not only did he win, he set the world record for it. He was known for greatness in fact, uh, at the end of Chariots of Fire, they put William Blake's, the poet's famous words, bring me my bow of burning gold, bring me my arrows of desire, bring me my spear, O clouds unfold, bring me my chariots of fire. But that wasn't the end of Eric Little's life. He gave himself to the cause of Christ. He moved to China, and just a few years later, after he had won many to Christ, the Japanese occupied China during World War II, and they had internment camps. And in those camps, many of Little's friends were killed and tortured. 
And Little himself would eventually die there in a prison cell, having never seen his third child who had recently been born. At one point in the film, he looks around after a race and he thanks those who've said he's won. And then he talks about the race of life, running the race, how hard it is, how difficult it is, how easy it is to fall off the broken path. And he ends that clip, and I posted this on Facebook if you want to see it. He says, commit yourself to the love of Christ. And that is how you run a straight race. See, Olympic glory will eventually fade, but there is a crown that fadeth not away. So what to do in the meantime? Right now we're in that race of life. We know that it's hard. We know that the gate's narrow. We know that the road is not wide. Put it another way, life is short. Life is hard. And eternity is on the horizon. And you can either try to run this race on your own, in your own strength and power. And Isaiah 40 tells us that even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Or you can hear the word of the Lord, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Because brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then Jesus is running your race, and he always finishes what he begins. I give you the words that my pastor said to us over and over again. Keep on keeping on. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.